Now I can breathe. All right. So we are uh, going through our series in the book of John, and uh, we're going to carry on this week from where Lainey left off last week. And I'm just going to have to set it up so that we don't come in cold. Uh, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, John chapter 3, and uh, we'll read from verse 14 in a moment. But Nicodemus was a, a well-respected man. He was a high-standing member of the Pharisees. He was one of Israel's foremost teachers. He was the theologian kind of Israel. If anyone knew about God, this was Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus at night. As Lady said, maybe he was embarrassed that his, his friends would see him coming, etc. We don't know exactly, but he, he came to Jesus at night full of respect, full of admiration for Jesus because he'd heard about or seen some of these miracles that Jesus was performing. And he starts this conversation with Jesus. He says, Jesus, we know you, you must be a rabbi from God because of the signs, the miracles you've done. And he's, he's starting this respectful conversation. And then Jesus kind of interrupts him and drops a bombshell in the middle of the introductions. He says, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. Nicodemus is bewildered. He's confused. Surely he should know about this. He's like the theologian of Israel. And he goes, how, how can you enter your mother's womb again and be born a second time? And Jesus is like, no, you've missed the point. You've had a natural birth. But now you need a spiritual birth. You need to be born again, he says. God's Spirit makes your spirit alive. And so Jesus kind of presents this fundamental change to Nicodemus. It's like a paradigm shift, and Nicodemus's cogs in his head must have been like whirring. He's never heard this stuff before coming from Jesus. And this is kind of some of the things that were completely changing for Nicodemus in that moment. He probably realized it's not something that he could do, being born again. It's not something that I, Nicodemus, can do. It's not a prize that you win for being good or for keeping the law, which was what Nicodemus was very good at. It's not inherited because he was born into the Jewish nation or a Christian family. You don't inherit your new birth, okay? It's something that God does inside us that fundamentally changes who we are. It's a change of nature. So in other words, observing the law, being a good person, trying to stop swearing, trying to stop getting drunk and all the, the bad stuff, Candace mentioned God drawing a line in the sand, all of those things are external. Trying to, trying to solve the symptom and not dealing with the root cause, the actual disease itself, the disease of sin. And Jesus says, well, flesh gives birth to flesh. You can try and keep the law as much as you want. You can try and improve your language as much as you want. But that's all external stuff. You need a new nature. You need to be born again. That's what Jesus says. Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied about it hundreds of years before. They said God would give us a new heart. He wouldn't just make us a better person, but He'd give us a whole new heart. Jesus doesn't say in the Scripture, you must improve yourself. You must get better and better. There's a certain threshold that once you cross that threshold, then you're a, a Christian. He doesn't say you must pull up your socks 
doesn't say you must improve yourself. He says you must be born again. There's a fundamental change that has to happen in our hearts. So all of this is going through Nicodemus' head in this conversation. Paul uses some other imagery to kind of drive home this quite radical change in thinking that had to happen in the Jewish people. In Ephesians 2, he says that we were dead in our sins and transgressions, but now we've been made alive. It's like you were either dead or we're alive. There's a very big difference between the two. Would you agree? It's binary. It's one or the other. He says in another place that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. Very different. You're not just a bit better. It's not like a software upgrade you do on your phone every three months. Looks the same, it's just it's a bit quicker, right? Less bugs and slowness. No, no, no. Old has gone, the new has come. Colossians 1, he says, we've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of His Son. There's two different kingdoms. We're completely transferred. There's no gray area in the middle. And I guess like a, like a baby born into a family that has to grow and learn and develop and start eating solid food and discovering who they are and learning about their family members. I was thinking about my kids this week. I've got three kids, 10, 8, and 4. And the oldest, Ethan, he's 10, when he was born in the first year or two of his life, he was an only child. And then all of a sudden, Briella arrived and he had to adapt to living with a sibling. Before that, he never had a sibling. So a whole, he had to learn to live with another competing <laughs> for mom's attention, competing for the food, whatever it might be. But then our youngest, Finley, he's like four years younger than the middle child. He's only ever known two older siblings. He's had to learn to deal with that, right? But, but a child has to learn to discover who they are, learn about their family, go to school, trying new sports, making friends, all of that stuff. And I think we could say the same is true for us spiritually. We are born again into this family, the start of the new life. Jesus says we enter the kingdom when we're born again, and we have to grow, we have to learn. We mature and we start getting solid food, Paul says in Hebrews. We discover our identity. We have to learn to live with our family members, the brothers and sisters. Look around. These are your local brothers and sisters. It's sometimes not easy to live with them, hey? No, 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 we're we great here. We're all good here. Not here. No, no, no. I, no, never mind. <laughs> but there's an incredible adventure that we get to be on. We're born again. It's the start of our life with Christ, not the end. This is the beginning. Just like a baby's born, it's the start of their life. So let's read in John chapter 3 from verse 14. We're going to carry on. Same kind of conversation. Jesus is carrying on with it. He's spoken about being born again, about the Spirit. And then he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, talking about himself, must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life with Him. In this very famous verse, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth does come into the light so that they may be plainly seen, so that, they, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. My first kind of observation, big idea from this passage this morning is we see God's motive. We see God's motive very clearly. Why did He send Jesus to die? Why did He go through this thing of having to make us born again, new creations, take us out of the kingdom of darkness? It wasn't because He owed us anything. It wasn't because He lost a bet or flipped a coin. My kids this morning, I don't think they know what real money is. They're like this new digital generation, they couldn't decide who was going to clean the bookshelf this morning. And so they said, Dad, can you ask Siri to flip a coin? Like, I don't think they've ever seen a coin, anyway. But God didn't flip a coin and He had to do this thing. It wasn't an idle hobby. God wasn't feeling needy and insecure that He had to go and find some humans to worship Him so that He could feel a bit better about Himself. That wasn't His motive. It says, for God so loved the world. His motive is love. God so loved the world that He gave. He's a giving God. He's a generous God. And what Heather was talking about, when we are giving, when we are generous of our time, of our love, of our friendship, of our stuff, it reflects who God is. So we want to be a giving and a generous people. And God gave the most precious thing that He had. He didn't give stingily, right? He gave the most precious thing, His Son, Jesus Christ. If you've got a a fly in your house. How do you take care of it? Let's have some votes. Who gets out the can of doom? Okay, some do, there's some doom and gloom people here. <laughs> who, who has one of those salt guns? Those bugger salt, you shoot the salt at... Oh, okay, no, no one else, all right. Just me. Who, who gets a fly swatter? Okay, who just leaves the fly? Okay, to be honest, don't, okay, we're not judging here. Okay, some honest people, good, good. But... But you wouldn't take a shotgun and try and shoot the fly. Am I right? That would be like completely overkill. You'd wreck your house and you would never find any evidence that you actually killed the fly anyway. It would just be obliterated, right? So, so our sin, if you think of, of the fly being a problem, you would never go too much to kill the fly. Our sin is a problem. It's such a big problem that the only solution is the death of the sinless Son of God. Now, that's not a shotgun approach trying to kill a fly. That's not God going overboard. I'm a punishing God. I'm going to punish my son. You see how bad you people are. I have to punish Jesus because of you. That was the only possible solution to our sin, was Jesus dying in our place on the cross. Sin is such a big deal to God. He can't just sweep it under the carpet you can't just say 100,000 million prayers and then your sin's forgiven. The only way for God to deal with the problem of sin was a sacrifice of Jesus. 
Sin is a big deal. We have to see it as a big deal. It cost Jesus his life. So 1 John 4 verse 10 says this, This is love. Not that we loved God. No, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the same, the same book of 1 John, or the same letter, John writes, God is love. His very nature, His very essence is love. It's not that God sometimes feels loving. You know, on Wednesday afternoons, God feels caring. That's the best time to pray, by the way, on Wednesday afternoons, because God's very generous with Himself. No, God is love. We've got a cat. We adopted a, a middle-aged cat from uh, someone in the church. And uh, it's gray, it's fluffy, his name is Smokey Bear. And uh, this cat honestly sleeps 23 hours a day. I have not ever in my life seen a cat that sleeps that much, really. And this cat, Smokey, when he is awake... He's like, just like cats are. They just do their own thing. You, they, they're not like a dog. <laughs> they're not affectionate all the time. In fact, Smokey's only affectionate when he's hungry. And then he rubs up against your legs, and like he dive bombs on your toes, and like, you know when he's hungry. That's the only time he ever meows when he's hungry. When he's hungry. He, he has these moments of affection throughout 23 hours of laziness. And God is not like that. God doesn't have moments of affection or moments of feeling love. God is love. Amen. Some of us wrongly think, and you, you won't find a scripture that says, God is anger, or God is wrath, or God is judgmental. God can get angry. We can provoke Him to discipline But that's not his default state, if I can use such earthy language about God. His default state is love. All the time he's loving. He gets upset. He gets angry. Yeah, when when we don't do things well. But he is love. God is love. His motive is love. Number two. We're not going to have much time to get into number two, but we, we really should. God loves the whole world. For God so loved... Hope City Church. No, for God so loved the world. He doesn't just love kind people or nice people or people who dress in orange. I've got a friend whose favorite color is orange. I said to him this morning, like, I'm disappointed you're not wearing orange today. Anyway, he doesn't just love the orange people or the Americans or those who can cook curry. Like, God loves the whole world. I don't know how else to say it. Every single person, he loves the planet, the animals, the... We are to look after the world and the animals and weird cats like Smokey and the environment. We should be looking after it because God says we should steward and He loves it. But we have a tendency to shrink down how vast and how great and how big God is. But just because, you know, Jesus is my Savior. He, saved, he died for me. He's my personal Savior. Well, yes, but He died for the whole world. His motive is much bigger than just me and my family. And so when we start thinking about being born again, well, as long as my family are all saved, that's fine. No, no, no. God's got a much bigger agenda, if you like. He died for the whole world. 
We often shrink his purposes or just limit what he can do or doubt his abilities. And he knows that. He knows we're human. And so the scriptures are littered. They're full of stories about the bigness of God, about how vast his plan is, about how ending his grace is. Full of scriptures like that. And Jesus, in his last few days, he said to his disciples, Go into where? All the world and make disciples of all nations, not just Johannesburg, not just Africa. Go and make disciples of all nations. And I think we as a church, we've been very inward focused in some ways. We need to just let God bust the ceiling off our small thinking. He does love us. He does love my family. He does love me. He does love this area, Eden Glen, Eden Vale. But he loves the whole world just as much. And he's called every local church to have a heart for the area and the nations. And that's something that I think we need to grow in as a church, is the bigness of God and getting more of God's heart. We should go on some mission trips this year to other countries just to like, stretch inside us. Number three, the cross brought death to Christ, but life for us. So Jesus references this passage in Numbers 21. He says, Moses, when Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, that's referring back to Numbers 21. You can go and read it. And what had happened, the Israelites, they were, they'd come out of Egypt, they'd crossed the Red Sea, they'd seen the power of God, and they're, they're wandering around the desert now, but they started to complain. They started to grumble, right? They started to stop trusting God. And so God kind of like disciplines them or judges them. He sends like a plague of snakes among these hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. The snakes start biting people. That's what snakes do. And many of them died. Thousands upon thousands died because of the judgment of God. They provoked him to anger, right? By their hard hearts. But then they repented. They turned back to God. And God said to Moses, well, I'm going to provide a, a rescue plan for them. I'm not going to take the snakes away. They need to learn to trust me again. And so make a statue of a snake, a bronze statue, and put it up on a pole, high up on a pole that everyone can see it. And when they are bitten, then they must look to the pole and trust that they will survive. And it says everyone who was bitten but looked to the statue of the snake, they survived, they lived. And Jesus is saying it's a bit similar now, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. What does that mean? Well, Jesus predicting how He would die. He'd be lifted up on a cross. And He knows, and we should know, I hope, that like those Israelites, we are all under God's judgment for our sin, because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of His glory. And he says, you need to trust me for a way of rescue. You need to look to my provision, which is Jesus on a cross, hanging there, and all who look to him will live. He provides the way of, the, the way of, of rescue. And so on the cross, there is this, like banking terms, if you like, there's a transaction that happens. And it's quite mysterious because you don't know how it happens, but we know it does happen. That all of my 
and all of your and everyone's, all of my sin and yuck and filth and guilt and shame, all of that for every person was taken from us by God and placed on Christ who hung there on a cross. All of my sin, all the terrible thoughts I've had, all of the bad things I've said and the wrong things I've done, all that filth from every person was taken off us and placed on Christ. And then Christ was punished by God for your sin and for my sin. Even though He didn't commit the sin, but He was punished as if He'd done that. Okay? There's a transaction. God takes it off us, puts it on Christ, and then He pours out the fiery fury of His wrath and His judgment and punishment for every person's sin. And friends, the agony and the, the breadth of Christ's suffering is unfathomable. We cannot begin to imagine how much Jesus suffered on the cross because of our sin. You see, before we can begin to think that the cross was for us, we first must know that the cross was done by us. It was my sin. It was your sin that sent Jesus to the cross. And Jesus, in his agony and pain, what were some of his last words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like the father turned his face away. He couldn't bear to look on the sin. It wasn't Jesus' sin, it was my sin, it was your sin. And heaven grows silent and the earth grows dark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it's like a whisper for Clendon. For Dean, for Vim, for Ava, for Vasen, for Nick, put your name in. Why have you forsaken me? For the world would come to know me. So friends, this last point, eternal life is for all who believe. Eternal life is for anyone who believes. And I think that we've got eternal life a bit wrong in our culture. I think eternal life, and it's whatever you think of it, if we die, we go to heaven, and then at some point God will destroy heaven and earth and make a new earth, okay? So that's all of the stuff future I'm talking about is eternal life. Everything after death is eternal life, whether it's heaven or the new earth. But I think it's going to be a whole lot better than we think or imagine. Often the first thought that pops into our head when we think of going to heaven is what? A cherub with wings on a cloud playing a harp. Or, or an unending church service. I'm not going to heaven if it's an unending church service. And I'm a pastor. Okay, Heaven is not going to be boring. Do you know how I know? Let me tell you how I know. Four years ago, my mother-in-law turned 80. And she's a very generous lady, although she doesn't yet know Jesus. She took us to Mauritius for a week. It was the most amazing holiday. I'd never been to an island before, and uh, it was um, never been to a tropical island. I've been to England. <laughs> England's not a tropical island. But we went to Mauritius, and uh, like the place we were staying offered all these things, like skiing and snorkeling and like 
just all these activities. And so I signed up to go snorkeling one day, and I'd never been snorkeling. I was like, okay, well, I'm willing to give this a try. It's part of the package. This is going to be fun. So you, you sign up, you jump in the boats at the appointed time, they take like 15 of you out. It takes about 20 minutes to get to the reef. You put on these goggles and the mask, whatever, and you, you jump down in and you start swimming. And I'd never snorkeled before, so I'd never seen like in real life like underwater fish, if that makes sense. And I was honestly amazed. I think I even preached about it four years ago. Like the color the diversity, the, I just my breath was taken away by God's glorious creation of fish 20 minutes from some tiny island in, in the sea. And I, honestly, I was like almost worshiping God under the sea because I was just amazed and astounded by His beauty. And that's just like earth. Can you imagine what the creatures in heaven are going to be like? Just go read Revelation. There's some weird-looking creatures up in heaven, okay? And I'm also convinced that steak is going to taste even better in heaven. Now, if you go to the book of Hebrews, you won't find any scriptures on steak. But this is where I get my theory from. It's my theory. It's not in the Bible, so just hold it lightly. Hebrews says that the, like things like the tabernacle and the Old Testament, the temple, they were shadows. They were patterns of the true, of the real things that are in heaven. Okay? Follow my thinking. The stuff on earth is like a shadow compared to the reality of life in heaven, right? Vaughn's smiling. He knows where this is going. <laughs> if you go outside and you hold your hand up to the sun, you'll see a shadow of your hand, right? And if the sun is working properly, which it does, you'll count five fingers on your shadow. And if you go really close to your shadow, you'll see, well, it's the same shape and size as my hand. Why? It's a shadow of your hand. But if you just look at the shadow... You can't see any detail on the hand. You can't see the, the lines and the creases and the, the, the muscles or whatever. You, there's no way you can see any detail in that shadow. Now, this life is like the shadow, and eternal life is going to be like the real thing. It's going to be amazing. Eternal life is for all who believe. We've got to get excited about dying one day comment wasn't taken too well. <laughs> you know, it's going to be really, really cool. Three times in the passage we've read, verse 15, verse 16, verse 18, Jesus says, everyone who believes in Him, in Jesus, will have eternal life. Now, notice what it says there, everyone who believes. It doesn't say everybody who says the sinner's prayer will have eternal life. It doesn't say everyone who puts up their hand in a church service will have eternal life. It doesn't say that. What does it say? Everyone who believes. Those things help us to believe, but those things aren't the evidence that we've believed. There's no possibility of us buying eternal life or winning it in like a lottery. And there's no exclusivity I think this is really important. There's no, it says, for anyone who believes. In other words, this gospel that we preach, that we live, that has saved us, and the God that we serve is not sexist, is not classist, 
is not racist, okay? There's no exclusivity in the gospel. In other words, your past or your present, your age, your nationality, your skin color, your language, your qualifications, your bank balance, your literacy level, the car you drive, the house you live in, your golf handicap, or your sense of humor will not stop you from entering eternal life. They're no hindrance. They don't trip you up. Nothing can stop you from getting to eternal life if you believe in Jesus. Similarly, none of those things are any advantage. They don't help you get closer to God. Jesus says we are just to believe in Him. So what does this belief look like? What does this faith look like? It's a, it's a reliance, it's a trust, it's a depending on God. It's a leaning on God to trust Him that what He's done on the cross has sorted out our problem of sin. The sin that separates us from God. That is, He's dealt with it, His anger, His wrath has been appeased, it's been satiated. He doesn't need to get angry at sin anymore. He's done it once and for all on Jesus. Is he sad when we sin? Yes. But he's not angry and judgmental in the same way as he was when Jesus died. So trusting that he adopts me as his child, that he's going to lavish his grace and his love upon my life. So, so dependence, when you're married, you depend on each other. Candace is an amazing wife, and we depend on each other. She doesn't know what's coming here. <laughs> we depend on each other because we're codependents, right? We live together. We're married, married for 14 years. And so I depend on Candace most of the time for her to make dinner at night. Not because I'm sexist, and that's the wife's role, and not my, uh, you know, that's not my role, but because she's much better at it. She's got far more creative ideas in cooking than I have. And she's at home much earlier than I am. And so she, you know, and she depends on me most mornings to make coffee because we need to wake up and we're addicted to this thing called caffeine, right? <laughs> Please pray for us afterwards. <laughs> addicted. But like last week, I've been recovering from jet lag because I was overseas the week before. And like, I don't hear my alarm sometimes. And so it's very embarrassing for me that she has to make me coffee some mornings. But, but we're not entirely dependable or reliable in that sense, right? And it's, I'm embarrassed to say that she's had to make the coffee. And it's, biblically, we, we have this problem because you know what the Bible says, hey? Hebrews, not Shebrews. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I have no idea where I am now. <laughs> God is entirely dependable. So we put our faith and our trust in Him. Faith, I don't know how I'm going to articulate this last idea before we land. But faith, our faith is not just for the future. Okay, so I've got faith. I've put my faith in Jesus. I'm, I'm born again. Eternal life is... It's waiting for me when I die, hopefully in many, many years to come, right? Decades to come. But that, we can have this pension mentality. The company I work for 
take money off my salary and supposedly invest it in a good place that when I retire, 65, I'll have a pension to live off, right? But like that for me, that's decades away. That pension is a long way off. I'm not living for my pension, right? In fact, it's got no benefit for me now. In fact, it hurts me now because they take money off my salary to put it in my pension. And so sometimes we can have this pension mentality about our eternal life, about our faith. Well, I've got faith. I'm going to heaven one day, so I'll just try my best to live out this life. But I don't think that God, that's the way God's called us to live. We are to live by faith, Paul says. And often we put the emphasis on the word faith. We live by faith. We have to build up our faith. And that's true, but I think sometimes we need to put the emphasis on the live. We live. Jesus said there's abundant life in Him. We live by faith. Hopefully we'll die in faith and get to eternal life. The Galatian church, Paul was very strong in his rebuke of the Galatian church. He says, you foolish Galatians. Imagine we have someone from the outside come to the church. You foolish Hope City church. That's how strong the language is. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? After starting with the Spirit, why are you now trying to attain your goal through human effort? It's like they'd started their lives in faith, but they just went into works and doing things their own way and not living by faith. They'd started by faith, but they didn't carry on by faith. So this eternal life which comes to us through faith is not just for the future, it's for now. It's for every day. So eternity, eternity, if we have faith in Jesus, is guaranteed, more guaranteed than your pension or the value of your pension, right? Eternity is guaranteed. We will spend eternity with Jesus, okay? But we only have this life to spend for Jesus. I'll say it again. We will spend eternity with God. We will. But we only have this life to spend for Him, for His kingdom, for His people, for His bride, the church. This is all we have these few decades. The more we live by faith, the more we store up riches for ourselves in heaven. We want to live like the Galatians, we want to live by faith. The more we live by faith, the more we are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. The more we live by faith, the more giants we will slay in this life. You might slay some in your own strength, but you'll slay more if you live by faith. The more we live by faith, the more victory we're going to have, the more conquering. The more we live by faith, the more we're going to see the power of God and miracles and the supernatural and healing and signs and wonders. We'll see it more and more the more we live by faith. The more we live by faith, the louder will be our master's commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. Can we stand? I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to break bread together. And if you, if you didn't pick up one of these little communion cups, the serving team are going to kind of walk around and you can grab one now. A little tray at the back. Lawrence and Molly will bring those around. Just look out for them and, and grab one. We're going to break bread together as we think about this new life.
You might remember a few weeks ago, I spoke about, as a church, us wanting to make space, create a moment where we can meet with God, we can do business, right? And so, at the end of the service, we're always going to sing some kind of song softly, that we can just have a few minutes without any agenda that we can connect with God. We might pray for people possibly, but the aim now, we want to meet with God. We want God to touch us, to, to reach inside our hearts and to, to change us. And so what, this is what we're going to do. We do it a bit differently, okay? So for everyone, this is different. Don't look worried. We're going to break bread while the band are playing quietly. And after we've broken bread, we're going to sing a song. That makes sense. Okay, cool. Just checking the band on the same page. And this is how I want us to break bread. Okay, it's a bit different to normal. We're going to gather in groups of three or four. So if you're a single person, well, not that you're single, but you're only one of you here today. You might be married, but only one is here. Find two others. If you're a couple here, find another couple. And we're going to break bread. And we're going to pray together as we're breaking bread. And these are the prayers I want us to pray for each other. They can be really simple, and they can sound just like this. We want to pray for each other that because we have eternal life, there's no condemnation. Often we feel condemned because of how we haven't served God this week or the stuff we've done or thought or said. Okay? Let's pray, Lord, let there be no condemnation for those in Christ. Let's pray a prayer of thanks at the wonder and the amazement of this gift of eternal life that we're going to experience forever and ever. And let's pray, God, give us a, like a fresh taste. Like when I saw fish under the sea, like it was like, wow. And we can become stale and grumpy as Christians because we've lost the wonder and the joy of this new life. Let's pray, God, let it be fresh in our hearts and our minds. And then let's pray lastly a prayer of, Lord, help us to live this life to the best we can for your kingdom. Amen? Let's do that now. Let's move around, find two or three others. Let's break bread together. I'm going to pray those prayers out loud. If you're too nervous to pray out loud in your group, that's totally cool. Just say, pass. Someone else will pray. And if everyone says, pass, just say, pass again. <laughs> 